A Long Way Back to Zion Book 2, Tyrants and Savages Chapter 7 The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs Bay of All Saints, Brazil Yes or no? Commander Arthur Rowland reared back and swung again bringing his fist down hard against the man's already broken face. The man was naked, bloody, and bound, sitting in a chair in the middle of a bright cell. For light, there was a cluster of floodlights Roland had placed on the floor a few feet away from the colonel. They bathed him in blinding artificial light constantly and made it nearly impossible for him to open his eyes without them hurting he spit a stream of crimson blood and bits of his teeth onto the ground before he spoke. What difference does it make? The bloody-faced colonel winced and waited for another strike. I was just following orders. His voice trailed off, becoming softer and submissive. He knew that he was most likely going to die, and he just wished his captor would get it over with. It makes all the difference in the world... Roland walked forward a few steps and sat a five-gallon bucket on the ground in front of the colonel. There was a lid on it, but the colonel could hear frantic squealing of the rats that were inside. I caught these little guys around the prison wing of your compound here. Not very sanitary. Certainly not as nice as the rest of your base. What does an outpost like this need with a creepy medieval dungeon, colonel? I didn't find any prisoners. Where'd they all go? Roland backhanded the colonel as hard as he could. Not prisoners. The colonel was tired of being beaten and punched, and the idea of what Roland was going to do with the rats was even more troublesome. If talking could spare him from any more of this nightmare, talking is what he would do. They were test subjects for the plague. Roland replied in a knowing voice. He and the other ravens had scouted around the base and the surrounding area and had come to the striking conclusion that the, that the plague had been released from this location as well as New York. For as far as they searched, in a 20-mile radius, there was not a single living human save for the soldiers of the GNU compound. How long ago did you release it? A year ago, the colonel was defeated. He had held his peace for hours, but was finally giving in to the torment Roland was raining down on him. Not to mention, he hated rats. The screeching coming from the bucket was more than he could take. We've monitored it in our section. It has a 90% mortality rate. It's already spread into southern Mexico. Within another year, it will have spread to every corner of every major continent on the earth. And how many bases does the GNU now control, globally? Roland's voice dripped with loathing. More than you can hope to combat. The colonel winced as Roland slapped him hard on either side of his head. The attack disoriented him and left his ears ringing. I took your compound with ten men and small arms. I killed forty-three of your men. I captured all your arms, your rations, your transports. And I didn't take a single casualty while doing it. You're the only one still alive here. Roland grabbed a tuft of the man's hair and whispered in his ear with a poisonous oath. You don't understand how bad your day is about to get, Colonel. This is just a small outpost. The party has hundreds of bases all over the world. The young colonel cussed and thrashed. You can't go to war with us. We're too strong. Ah, you started it. Roland ripped his hand away with a good amount of the colonel's hair coming with it. So, Roland paused for a moment, trying to see if he'd sufficiently broken the man down enough to answer the next question. Who's the big boss? Where can I find him? No. The colonel screamed, spat, and struggled against his bonds. They were beyond secure, however, and he wasn't going anywhere. Roland grabbed the side of the man's face and placed his thumb over the colonel's left eye. He'd thought by now the colonel would have been softened up enough. The man was a bit tougher than he'd thought. Let's start with the headquarters. Where is your capital? 
If this is just an outpost, you must have a capital, right? Roland paused and waited for the response. The colonel took sharp breaths in and out and did not respond. Roland began to apply pressure with his thumb. No, stop, stop, the colonel shrieked and thrashed. This stops when you make it stop, Roland replied, intensifying the pressure. Where is your capital? I, I, the colonel faltered under the pain and yelled again. Yes, your eye. You're going to lose it if you don't answer. California, the colonel squealed. Roland stopped pushing, but he left his thumb where it was for the moment, one knuckle deep in the colonel's eye. California's a big place. Which city? Roland allowed the colonel a few seconds of breathing before he started to push again. San Francisco. The colonel blurted it out before Roland pushed any deeper, and Roland immediately pulled his thumb out. A thin stream of blood seeped out of the corner of the colonel's eye, and he howled in pain for a long moment. It's San Francisco, he said again, hoping the pain would just stop. Thank you, Colonel. And your president, your prime minister, whatever you call him. The maniac at the head of all this. Roland looked into the colonel's remaining eye. It glared back with menacing hatred. Madame President Ellison. The colonel's voice was angry, but thoroughly defeated. Any relation to the former President Ellison? Wasn't he the asshole in charge when it all came down? Roland's question garnered no response, but the way the colonel's eye shifted away from his gaze gave it all away. You know, I'm starting to get my head around this whole situation. Roland stood up and he walked around behind the colonel, pacing back and forth in silence for a full minute before he spoke again. See, we were always told that the party and the GNU were destroyed during the chaos. But that's not it at all, is it? Roland moved in front of the man again, and he sat down on the shrieking bucket of rats. So, Roland rubbed his face, and he gave the colonel a hard look, clicking his tongue. This isn't a resurgence, is it? The GNU was never actually destroyed. Not completely. Not the inner party. Not the depopulation department. You guys actually did survive the chaos. There was no response from the colonel, but by his face, Roland could tell he was onto it. He kept pulling at the invisible string, unraveling the whole wicked story. So, you slither away. You let your opposition think you've been destroyed. I mean, they couldn't have been far from wrong. There weren't many of you left. Then, after the chaos sends the world back to the 15th century, you replenish your numbers for a couple generations, and then you come crawling back out to release the plague. Technically, I guess you'd call it a viral pandemic. The ultimate depopulation initiative. Yeah, that's pretty shrewd on the party's part. Evil. Genocidal. But pretty shrewd, I'll give you that. It's not the party's fault that people didn't go along with the party's policies. We did everything we could to save them from themselves. They were the one who caused the food shortages, the environmental problems. We warned them for years, and they didn't listen. The colonel's remaining eye flared a little and narrowed into a slit. He looked contemptuously over to Roland. He fully expected to be punched, slapped, stabbed, or even shot. But Roland simply laughed. See, that's what really frightens me about you people. Roland stood up. His voice was low, but he was nearly trembling with anger. You sincerely believe that what you just said to be a fact. You know, I grew up on stories of the GNU. What the party did. The atrocities it carried out. The funny thing is, I thought a lot of it was exaggeration. You know, most people do. Normal, the sane human beings, they just can't fathom it. But now I've seen it. Now I, now I know. Pulling his knife from his vest, Roland flipped it back and forth in his hand. I won't ask you this again. 
Did you know the ship was full of women and children? Roland clutched the knife tightly and leaned in close. Yes or no. We have orders to fire on all your ships if possible. The party's current policy is to destroy the descent. The colonel's face could not hide his fear as Roland advanced. We are not to differentiate on the basis of age, sex, or... No, no! The colonel screamed as Roland reached forward, pinched a hunk of skin on his chest, and sliced off the colonel's right nipple. What threat is a couple thousand refugees to you? Roland's voice was calm and flat. If the virus is as deadly as you claim, everyone else will succumb to it. What is it about a colony full of widows and orphans that scares you people so damn much? The antivirus. Your cure. The colonel spoke breathlessly through clenched, chattering teeth. It's a threat to the depopulation initiative. Roland reached forward, and he cut off the colonel's other nipple. Then he tossed it aside. Call it what it is, colonel. It's not an initiative. It's genocide. And the cure, our cure, it's not our cure. We stole it from you. Mikhail Makarov, have you ever heard of him? Probably the most famous man in New Hope's history. He's the one who put you bastards in a cave for a hundred years. and thought he killed you outright. That's not possible. The man looked up at Roland with venom in his eyes. You're a dead man. Why would I lie to a dead man? Roland stood up straight and he looked down at the bloodied colonel. Once again, a couple thousand refugees get the cure. What threat is that to you? The colonel fought through the pain and confusion washed over his face. Wait, you, you don't know, do you? The colonel attempted to laugh, but when Roland crouched back down and he raised the knife, he stopped himself. The cure, you don't know what it does? The colonel turned his head and he waited for pain. What do you mean? Roland took pause. It's, well, the colonel tried to calm himself. Blood dripped from the two wounds on his chest, and he did not want to imagine what Roland would cut off next. We don't know how you did it, but your cure is contagious. It's just as contagious as the virus itself. Now, Colonel, certainly you can come up with something better than that. Roland reached up and he grabbed hold of the man's ear. No, no, it is. I know it's impossible. And we have no explanation for how you did it, but it is, I swear. The colonel spoke faster. He tried to pull his ear out of Roland's grasp. We've monitored areas where you've been active. Even got our hands on a few people who came into contact with members of, of your colony. The colonel was breathing deliberately and trying his best to articulate his voice. When exposed to a person who's been given our antivirus, an infected person retains the virus, and its its 90% mortality rate, it doesn't change. But when exposed to a person who's been given your cure, the infected subjects, they caught the cure. Nearly all test subjects recovered when exposed to an individual who's been given your antivirus. Do you have any of this on file where I can see it. Any proof? Roland was still skeptic, but open to look at proof if the colonel had any. Yes, on my computer. In my office, the password is... It's Oscar Yankee 05531 Hotel Lima. The colonel breathed a sigh of relief when Roland stepped away toward the door. Roland pounded twice on the heavy cell door and it opened. Check the colonel's computer for any re files related to the plague. Password is OY05531HL. Roland nodded toward Levi, who wrote the password down on a small notepad. Is Team 2 back from the coast yet? Yeah. Levi's voice was a mixture of anger and sorrow. Ship's at the bottom of the bay, Roland. No one left. No, no way to reclaim anything. We're still looking, but it doesn't look hopeful. 
Levi's face was stone as he said the words, but it brightened slightly with the last sentence. They did find one survivor. A little bunged up, maybe. Maybe a concussion. But other than that, perfectly healthy. Who? Roland was taken aback. The fact that someone had survived was a miracle in itself. Your little picket boy. Kids as tough as nails. Or lucky, or, or both. Levi allowed himself a smile, but it faded quickly. He's the only one, though, Roland. He's the only one they found alive. Levi left it at that, and he whisked off down the hallway toward the door of the prison wing of the compound. Roland left his back to the colonel for a couple moments before he turned back around. All right, colonel. This is the last time I will ask this question. If you don't answer it to my satisfaction, I'm going to cut off something you'll miss a lot more than anything else. Striding back toward the colonel, Roland crouched down and he rested his elbow on the colonel's leg, the knife hovering above his crotch. When you fired the missiles, did you know the ship was a refugee ship? Did you know it was full of women and children? Yes or no? Yes. The colonel was close to tears, and he pulled his chin into his chest. I was just following orders. Roland did not strike or cut. He stood up, and he sheathed his knife, stepping back toward the door. Wait, where are you going? Roland did not respond. When he reached the bucket of shrieking rats, he picked it up on his way to the door. I'm going back to the files on your computer, colonel. Roland reached the door and he paused without looking back. If anything is not as you described it, I'm sure I can get back here in time. In time? In time for what? What do you mean? The colonel was becoming frantic now. He had hoped during his entire interrogation to see Roland simply walk away. Now, however, as the man was leaving... The colonel realized how dreadful isolation would be in that room with no food or water, tied immobile to a chair. Before you die of thirst, colonel. Roland stood like a stone in the doorway. He reached down to the bucket in his hand and he wrenched the lid off. Tossing the open bucket across the cold concrete floor, the rats poured out this way and that, scrambling into the dark corners of the room out of the colonel's sight. Or before the rats get hungry. Roland pressed the door closed, locking it from the outside, and walked out of the building. Outside the dingy prison building, he was met by five of his ravens and Adam Pickett. The boy rushed up and flung himself around Roland's waist, gripping tightly to him. For a moment, Roland's hard heart melted and his anger dissipated. You're all right, little guy. Roland put his hand on the boy's head, and he held him close. He was not crying, but Roland noted that with everything that had happened to the young boy, it was a miracle he showed any emotion at all. He wondered what the lasting effects would be on the boy's psyche. Adam looked up to Roland and caught his first glimpse of Adam's injuries. One of his eyes was puffy, and his, it was deep shades of black and blue. He had a superficial cut across his cheek, which someone had already tended to. It didn't need stitches, but a few butterfly strips held the wound closed. Through the black and blue of the eye, the injuries, though, Adam's face was serious and brave. It made Roland's chest expand with pride. The boy's resolve wasn't broken yet. We've scanned the beach for survivors all morning, sir. Matt shook his head, leaving the sentence unfinished. We need to move ASAP, Commander. We've no way of knowing when reinforcements could show up. We saw a runway. They might have air support. Even if they don't, they might have another base somewhere around close. They'll be sending a search party sooner or later when they don't receive contact from this outpost. If they had air support, they'd probably be here by now, Mark reasoned. His face was dejected and sorrowful but none of the ravens were admitting defeat. Where are we going to go? Carson spoke up in an uneasy voice. We couldn't reach the colony even if we had a secondary location. We don't have a ship. It doesn't matter where we go right now. Just away from here. Edward held his scoped rifle at the low ready 
and he gave Roland a look of urgency. We take the transports we found, we load them up with all the munitions we can carry, we head in country. If what the colonel told me was true, there isn't a civilian population within a hundred miles, Roland nodded to his men, we'll be able to move freely. Head to the compound and round up all the supplies you can find. We leave in an hour. Food, weapons, all the intel we can gather. Aye, aye, sir. John slung his rifle to his side, and he strode toward the ATV at their backs. In a few minutes, the group was in front of the compound, loading the ATVs. The transports were new tech, and ran off a hydrogen motors that used water, much like the Morning Dove had, just in a smaller package. As long as the ATVs held up, they could find water, they could drive across the whole continent. The bodies were reinforced with light body armor that would stop anything short of a 50 caliber round, and the tires were airless and could take as much of a beating as the rest of the vehicle. Seating two in the front and a gunner in the back, two of the ATVs featured an aft-mounted minigun that could lay down an impressive amount of firepower. The third ATV could seat six, but it was laden with all manner of weapons and supplies. These things are... Walt took pause when he noticed Adam was standing close, and he refrained from using the word he had originally planned on. Frickin' mean. What are we gonna call them? They're transports, Walt. Phil replied, strapping down the four rows of five-gallon containers to the top of the six-person ATV. They don't need special names. Phil hopped down and adjusted his chest rig, then he wiped the sweat from his forehead with a bandana. Nah, nah. That won't do. Walt gesticulated, tossing his pack onto the back of the lead ATV beside the minigun. We gotta have a name for our little war wagons here. Uh, Llama. Light Armored Mobile Assault ATV. That's the designation in the manual here. Edward tossed the manual back to the glove compartment and he shut it. Happy? That's awful, Walt replied, stepping into the back and settling into the gunner seat. I'm just going to call it a wagon, I guess. There was no reply from any of the other ravens. Everyone was still reeling from the loss of the ship and all the people aboard it. Though the ravens kept mostly to themselves, all the men had lost friends on the boat, and no one was in the mood for Walt's banter. Walt had something broken in him when it came to normal human emotions. It was possibly a side effect from his early life spent in solitude in the Canadian wilderness, and all the ravens were accustomed to his eccentricities. He pushed his oversized glasses up on his nose, and he went to work checking out the minigun. Shortly, Adam meandered over toward him and stood near the back of the wagon. Hey, Walt? Adam's small voice brought the man's attention away from the gun. Yeah. What's up, Adam? Walt gave the kid a smile, an expression he never failed to display, especially when he talked to Adam. Are these the, the bad guys? The ones who shot the boat? Adam motioned with his head toward a couple of corpses that lay near the bay doors where the ravens were busy loading the wagons. In honesty, Walt as well as the other ravens, had barely paid attention to all the dead bodies of the GNU soldiers that were scattered around the complex. Mostly, it was because they had been ser busy searching the coast for survivors or checking out the complex, but partly it was because they were all inoculated to combat and death, and the sight of a dead body was not something that turned their heads very easily these days. As Walt looked at the young boy, however, he realized just how graphic the scene that lay around them was. The thirty troops they had killed outside the compound lay wherever they had fallen in a manner of gore and horror. Walt immediately realized it was not a scene that the boy Adam should have seen. But there was little he could do about it at this point. Hey, hop up here and give me a hand with this gun, buddy. Walt helped Adam up into the back of the wagon and he sat him down on the floor of it. It blocked his view from the surrounding battlefield, and it was all Walt could do for the boy at this point. Yeah, he said after a short silence. Those are the bad guys. But we're going to get out of here before any more show up. All right? Good. Was all the reply that Adam gave. 
Walt wondered what he meant by the reply, whether it was good that they were leaving or good that the bad guys were dead. But instead of prying, he changed the subject and proceeded to show Adam the minigun. Well, Levi unplugged the small flash drive from the colonel's computer and he placed it securely into a pocket on the side of his own computer case. What he said is true. Somehow, and don't bother asking me how, our antivirus is, well, contagious. After securing his computer case and his pack, he returned to face Roland. Is it possible that New Hope doesn't know that? <sighs> there are a lot of things that are classified. Roland shrugged. They may know, they may not. Any way we can contact them. It would take time. Time that we don't have right now. Levi shook his head. Do you think that they'll move location again? Uh, Captain Stonewall went down with the ship, and they were in contact with New Hope at the time of the blast. But there's no way to know, really. Roland did not like his situation. He was in the dark. The ship was lost, but he was beginning to formulate a plan. It was an insane plan, with almost no hope of success, but it was better than nothing. Levi could see the gears turning as he looked at his commander, and finally Roland spoke. We know the codename designation for the secondary location, Zulu 003. The captains of all the ships know all secondary locations. Roland wiped his hand down his face, smoothing out his beard. What are you getting at, Commander? Levi's face was inquisitive. Roland beckoned him to follow, and they walked down the hall. All the while, Roland continued his silent thought. They passed through the compound quickly and met the rest of the group outside, where the wagons were fueled up, loaded down, and ready. The supplies made the six-person wagon look a bit overstuffed, and it would be quite a task to fit four full-grown men into it. They would have to make do, however, but all the supplies were going to be vital if Roland's wild plan had any chance of success. All in all, the Ravens had managed to gather 50 carbines and rifles, a handful of saws or squad automatic weapons, five grenade launchers, and enough ammunition for more fights than they hoped they'd have to fight. In addition to the extra weapons, the Ravens were now fully loaded down as they were. Each man carried a variation of the same rifle, chambered in 7.62x51, along with multiple magazines of ammunition and backup weapons of different varieties. The weapons were of old-world design, but new-made, copies of military rifles from before the chaos. All their gear hung from their plate carriers, which contained steel plates. Shrapnel could be a problem with the solid steel plate, but it was better than taking a round full-on in the chest. Along with their weapons, they all carried 80-pound packs on their backs that housed everything they needed to survive indefinitely wherever they could find themselves, outside of an arctic climate. Because of the transports, they would not be going on foot. That meant they, would hadn't, they wouldn't have to scale down their gear or leave anything behind. Everyone looked up when Roland and Levi approached, waiting for their orders. All right, boys and girls. Roland stepped up forward to address the group. Hope you got everything you need because we're headed out. As for the long-term mission, we're without a ship and a captain. We have no way of knowing where New Hope will be gathering without a captain, and no way of reaching New Hope without a ship. That brings us to the plan. Everyone's ears perked at the mention of an actual plan. Roland was happy to see their receptiveness, because it was going to be one hell of a long shot. Chapter 8 We must stop thinking of the individual and start thinking about what is best for society. Hillary Clinton San Francisco, California Judith Ellison always wore dresses. They weren't mild or flat like most of her secretaries and maids wore, but bright and bold shades of red, blue, green, or black, depending on her mood. Though she considered herself the epitome of an empowered woman, She'd always thought the female party members who religiously wore pantsuits or short-cut hair were trying too hard. 
She had once been very attractive, but her age was beginning to catch up to her now, and that bothered her. It took her a bit longer to get ready in the mornings, but she could still fade the lines and wrinkles with heavy makeup and regain some of her youthful resemblance. She peered at her reflection in the mirror and straightened out the blood-red dress. After checking to make sure her hair was in place, she was satisfied she looked presentable. She had a lot on her agenda today. Besides the debacle down in Brazil, there was another, more pressing issue to address. The mysterious antivirus was spreading as fast as the virus itself had. The greatest depopulation initiative in history, the GNU's miracle virus, had taken decades to perfect, engineering it in a way that nothing could stop it. Now, it seemed, the descent had whipped up a solution seemingly overnight. Not only that, but there were hundreds of populated areas where the plague had failed to reach in North America alone. Mostly concentrated in the two major mountain ranges, these groups varied in size from small villages to small city-states, and even what appeared to be a whole nation-state hidden away in the former state of Utah. The virus, their answer to the human population problem, had utterly failed. Now, it was up to her to come up with a new plan. She wouldn't be consulting the viral experts and lab coats any longer. They were at the bottom of the bay. No, it was time to get a little more direct with regards to combating the population problem and the descent. The descent. Judith's hate for these people knew no ceiling. It could not be quenched or lessened. They were to be destroyed, obliterated, and erased. To purge the world of the filthy, violent, uncivilized, and parasitic sickness that was the descent, Judith Ellison would do whatever was required. They realized from the beginning that there would be pockets of descent that were untouched by the virus. That's precisely what the general was training his combat teams for. However, with the introduction of the impossible antivirus, there were three or four times the number of population centers that had survived. They had not planned on that. More dissenters meant more soldiers. More soldiers meant more time, arms, and resources. Military resources were something she didn't have to the extent she now needed. Of course, if the virus had done its job, more military resources would not have been needed. After the descent was destroyed, the military resources would not be required. The party would not require military at all. Just a police force capable of keeping the lower classes in check. That meant the party would have no need for bombs, combat vehicles, or any other warfighting technologies. As such, the party did not currently have the ability to replace anything more than small arms and munitions. Once a bomb was used, there would not be one to replace it. Once a combat helicopter went down, there wouldn't be another to take its place. All of it was trying her patience. Impatience was Judith's most prevalent character flaw, and she was finding it harder and harder to hide that fact. Today, she thought. Today we'll come up with a solution. Today we'll start mobilizing soldiers. Today is the day. She would have to act fast to deal with the descent, using what nuclear weapons she had on the largest targets and dispatching soldiers to clean up the rest. If she hit the descent swiftly, they would not have time to rise up against the party. She would not make the same mistakes her ancestors had. Turning on her heel... Judith strode out of the room and into the hallway that led to her office. Her heels clicked and clacked along the floor smartly, and she swayed her waist back and forth as she walked. It was slight and practiced, drilled into her head at a young age by her mother. Too much and you look like a whore. Too little and you look awkward and weak. Her mother had been an astute instructor. Wherever Judith walked, People moved quickly out of her way, ducking into offices, cutting off conversations, and finding something, anything, to do that would make them appear busy. 
Judith ignored them all and crossed into her office where two men were already waiting for her. Put your hands down, she spat, whisking by the two soldiers clad in camouflage uniforms. She took her seat behind the desk and looked at the two venomously. You better have something for me today, gentlemen. Did I say you could sit? She furrowed her brow and her eyes squinted when one of the two men glanced at a chair in front of him. Ma'am, General Bradford began, immediately pulling his eyes away from the chair. We believe this ship is connected to the same group as the other ship we captured a few weeks ago. And what brings you to this conclusion? Ellison replied before the general could finish his report. What makes you think that they're part of the same mystery group? Similar technologies, as far as the ships are concerned. Similar weapons, old world stuff for the most part. But we found some troubling things. Some of the technology seems, well... It's beyond the capabilities of anyone else we know of. The ship was it was sunken in the harbor along with its captain and crew, but our recovery teams have managed to gather some intelligence on it. Our Brazilian base was ransacked, however. There's no trace of the insurgents when our men arrived at the base, but they took a good amount of small arms and ammunition, as well as three transport vehicles. It appeared that they tortured Colonel Costa. I'm not sure if he gave them anything. He was dead when the team got to him. Judith breathed audibly and shook her head. And what, if anything, did the colonel know to tell? Judith was becoming angrier now, if that was even possible. Not much, ma'am. The younger man, Lieutenant Grayson, spoke up. Beyond need to know information about the orders and common knowledge about the party. Which includes the location of the capital, the depopulation initiative, and a whole plethora of other information that these dissenters did not know. Or should I say, did not know. First of all, you allow the captain of the captured ship to escape. Now this. Costa was your recommendation, and he lost the installation. I swear, if you weren't my cousin, you'd be wearing blue coveralls and a collar. Judith slammed her petite fist onto the table with impressive force. Ma'am, General Bradford spoke after the uneasy silence. Even if these people know of all of our locations, it's, it's unlikely they would attack us. Even if they had the force to do so, they lack the, the predisposition. From all available reports, they appear to be, first and foremost, a sort of humanitarian organization. Judith scoffed, and she flipped open a file which sat on her desk. Rifling angrily through the pages, she retrieved what she was searching for, and she pushed it forward. Humanitarians, General? Judith clicked her fingernail repeatedly on the photograph of Colonel Costa's dead body. His eyes were not but gaping holes in his head, and blood ran out of his sockets down onto his chest. Rats, Bradford. They left him tied to a chair, and they let rats chew his eyes out. Oh, they have small security teams, yes ma'am. The general glanced at the picture a couple times, trying to convince himself he spoke the truth. What I mean is, they, as a whole, they don't seem like a military organization. They have defensive protocols, but they don't have the equipment or the desire to conduct an offensive campaign, according to what we've recovered from the ships. I don't care if they're a busload of little old ladies on their way to retirement housing. I want them destroyed. All of them. Where are they? Why haven't our satellites picked up their locations? Judith crumpled up the photograph and tossed it to the side. Lieutenant Grayson looked for a moment as if he would answer, but a hard look from Judith advised him against it. The world is a large place, ma'am, the general replied, growing rather annoyed. We are working around the clock to locate any other ships. We've captured one, we've destroyed another. It takes time. Not to mention, we have other issues requiring our attention. Every day, we're mapping out new population centers, new targets, and 
This is a top priority, Judith growled, and she pressed her finger so hard against the file Bradford thought it might break. This is the unknown. That makes it the most pressing. We need to find out who these people are, and we need to kill them. I don't want excuses. I want results. She waved her hand dismissively. I'll see you downstairs in the conference room in an hour. Make sure all of your officers are present. Dismissed. Ma'am. He threw up a half-hearted salute, and then he shuffled to the door. Now for you. Judith hissed at Grayson. He did not reply. You embarrass me. I am tired of seeing your smug face in my capital. I can only demote you so many times, you know. Grayson wanted to protest. He wanted to tell Madam President exactly what he thought of her, but he knew that doing so would mean his life. You will take these men. She pushed forward a piece of paper with a list of names written on it. They'll be waiting for you at the airstrip when you get there. When you leave my office, you will go directly to the plane. You're going to Brazil, and you're going to track down these insurgents. If you return to the capital or any other GNU installation without the heads of these insurgents, I will have you executed. Are we clear? Yes, ma'am. It was all Grayson could say in response. I trust my wife and my child will be looked after in my absence. They will be, Judith replied snappily. As long as you stay absent or you complete your mission, you aren't even to contact HQ or any other installation unless you're reporting that these terrorists are dead. The threat was real, Grayson knew, and he did not intend on speaking any further. Smith, Beckett, get in here. A second after Ellison's command, two men filed into the room and stood on either side of Grayson. They looked like all other GNU troopers did, uniform in appearance, with clean-shaven faces, buzzed hair, blank stares, and camouflaged BDUs. These are your pilots. They'll show you to your plane, Lieutenant. Ma'am, Grayson saluted, turned, and left the office. The sound General Bradford always dreaded came clicking down the hallway. He could hear Ellison's heels through the open door, and he immediately nodded to these other officers who stood up rigidly at attention before the President had even crossed the threshold. None of them dared to look to her as she made her way toward the front of the room and the head of the table. They were all highly trained, remorseless facilitators of death and destruction, but they feared the President as much as any other party member or blue-cover worker. Sit, Ellison said, almost calmly, and everyone took their places around the table. Bradford was the last to take a seat, and he dimmed the lights by remote, and then he pressed a button on top of the table. The middle of the table shone white, and then a large projection appeared across its surface, displaying a map of North America. Bradford ran a hand down his old weathered face before speaking. Ma'am, he began falteringly. As of this morning, the count of active population centers large enough for immediate intervention is 59 in the nearest four quadrants. He put his fingers on the interface screen under his hand, and all across the map, yellow diamonds appeared. Most of these targets are in mountainous regions with natural barriers to outside influences. The others are in middle states, ranging from Texas to North Dakota. Bradford paused to let Ellison speak, but she just widened her eyes a bit and tilted her head. He'd worked with her long enough to know this meant he should continue. He zoomed in on the map to gain a closer picture of western Colorado, Utah, and eastern Nevada. Nearly half of the yellow diamonds were contained within this region. Our current strategy is to purge those who are of the greatest threat first. That means we begin in Utah, where our drones are reported the most developed and armed population centers. However, with our current number of combat-ready troops, we can't expect to purge any more than 10 to 12 of the Utah targets by spring. 10? Ellison leaned back in her chair, and she folded her hands in front of her. 12. Her annoyance was plainly seen on her face, even in the dim light, so Bradford took the opportunity to speak again. 
We can spare a few warheads on the largest population centers, he replied quickly. But we'll still need boots on the ground to finish the job, especially in the Wasatch Range where it'll be easy for large numbers of the descent to hide. Taking into account the terrain, the winter conditions, and our, our current number of combat troops, we'll be lucky to purge 12 by spring. Now, I'm sorry, ma'am. I don't want your apologies, General. Ellison clenched her teeth. How many troops do you have in training and reserve? They can be deployed as well. It won't be difficult to kill a bunch of primitives living in the mountains. Bradford had to catch himself before he replied. He knew full well that the people they were discussing were not as primitive as Ellison believed, and they would put up a tough fight. But Ellison would scoff at that fact. She had admonished him before simply for referring to the Utah dissenters by their chosen name, the LDS Republic, and he didn't want to rehash the subject. She wanted the problem resolved by him and did not want to hear how difficult it would be. Any more troops in the field would weaken us too greatly here at home, ma'am. Bradford had a card to play, a possible solution to the problem, but he did not want to come right out and say it. It was too radical an idea. We have a shortage of troops to deal with this problem, a shortage of ordnance, a shortage of modern arms and munitions with which to outfit a large number of soldiers, even if we had them. In short, we're ill-prepared for an offensive war because we place too much faith in the virus. And what don't we have a shortage of, General? Ellison nearly screamed, her veins thickening on her neck. Inwardly, Bradford smiled. She had played right into his hand. Blue covers? The timid voice was barely audible, coming from a massive man on Bradford's right. Ellison shot him a look with that, that would have stopped a smaller man's heart, but Bradford interjected quickly. If we were to draw recruits from the blue covers... We could lessen casualties on our regulars. Bradford glanced sideways at his officers, then back to Ellison, feigning a breakthrough. We could use them in conjunction with our strike teams and nearly quadruple our numbers in the field. You want to take collars off of them and put rifles in their hands, Ellison scoffed. General, there's a reason that only party members are allowed to own weapons. Oh, we could give them probationary party status if they enlist, or we could simply offer more comfortable accommodations and better rations. Bradford was sweating a little. He was not out of the woods yet. What he had suggested was not exactly in line with party doctrine. In fact, it was borderline sacrilege, but it was the only solution he could come up with. The latter would probably suffice. We don't have the weapons or ammunition to outfit them. Another general, lower in rank than Bradford, shook his head and frowned. Uh, most of our targets don't have ammunition or weapons either. Those who do have guns eh, could only have a small, finite amount of ammunition. Bradford shot the man a sideways glance as he continued. It's true we don't have enough modern rifles to outfit them but we can clean out the contraband lockers. We can give them old-world weapons. Even still, there are warehouses full of confiscated weapons from the old world. Bradford nodded. That will lessen the threat to our handlers, but still make them effective against unarmed or underarmed dissent. Although, using blue covers will keep the capital more defended, which I feel is prudent, taking into account that... Our other problem is still a mystery. This faction, they may have more ships of which we're unaware. And if the blue covers go rogue once they're in the field? Ellison's tone was still cautious, but she seemed to understand the positives of the general's plan. If our arms fall into dissenting hands, we can make our overall mission more difficult to complete. We leave their collars on, Bradford assured. They'll be under our supervision every step of the way, and if they disobey orders and become a threat, uh, we neutralize them. Ellison's expression was changing, and she began to smile slightly. 
Bradford exhaled a sigh of relief. One push of the button and the troublemaker is neutralized in a gruesome enough way that it will make the others more likely to comply with orders from then on. Well, Ellison's smile widened. At least I have one military man who can think critically and solve problems, even if the rest of you are useless. She scowled at the other men at the room. I trust you're ready to begin training these recruits as soon as I give you the go-ahead. Yes, ma'am, Bradford replied assuredly. Well then, go ahead, General. I want your blue covers trained and ready for deployment in six weeks. Ellison nodded and stood up. The rest of the men in the room, including the general, also stood. Very good, ma'am. I'll see to it immediately. Bradford saluted, but Ellison was already on her way out of the room, her hips swaying a little bit more than usual. Chapter 9 I follow him to turn my serve upon him. Shakespeare Well, that was unpleasant. Smith stepped up beside Grayson as they left the building. His blank face from Ellison's office had melted into a half-smile expression. I'm Smith. The man extended his hand for a shake, but Grayson ignored him. What are your ranks? Grayson glanced at them, noticing the two men were wearing no uniforms or designations. Uh, We don't have any. Not anymore. Smith's reply was sheepish. We've all been stripped of them prior to this little mission. The whole crew, that is. So, what did you do to incur the wrath of our Madame President? Grayson's annoyance was plain. First Ellison had stuck him with an improbable mission, and then she'd given him a team of malefactors. Beckett there went AWOL for a few days, and me? Smith chuckled. Well, let's just say I got friendly with one of the higher-up's lady friends. How higher-up? Grayson could have guessed. High as high goes, Smith sniggered. Where'd you go AWOL, Beckett? Grayson didn't much care at this point, but he figured he would ask nonetheless. In the bottom of a few bottles of that hooch the blue covers make, Beckett shrugged. Thought I had leave to tell you the truth. I think somebody made a mistake up the chain. Not much I can do about it now, though. And the rest of the men? Grayson's mood was growing fouler with every step toward the airstrip. Not really sure, Smith shrugged. This and that, but uh, but they're all shooters. It's not a bad bunch, all things considered, as far as combat ability, that is. Is the plane squared away? Grayson sighed. They had arrived at the strip, and the men were loading two llamas into the belly of the plane, along with the rest of their gear. Two llamas, gear, nine shooters, and enough fuel to put us in Brazil, Smith smiled, trotting up to the plane. We'll be lucky to make it in that thing, Grayson shouted after him. The plane was most likely the oldest cargo plane in the hangars. The bitch could have at least given me two more shooters. Grayson said underneath his breath. Uh, The llamas hold six apiece. He clarified when he noticed Beckett was still standing beside him. That's why we only have enough fuel to get there, Beckett laughed. This is a one-way trip for all of us, Lieutenant. Grayson glanced over to him. And just how the hell am I supposed to get back after I kill these insurgents? Grayson folded his arms, looked to Beckett, the plane, and then back toward party headquarters where Ellison would be sitting behind her desk, wearing a cruel, pitiless face. For a second, he thought he'd refuse the mission and take whatever punishment she'd give him, but then again, he knew that would be death. Ellison didn't make threats. She made promises. Ah, don't worry, Lieutenant. Beckett noticed Grayson's furious expression, and he gave him a serious nod, motioning toward the plane. I shoot pretty good for a pilot. We'll make it back. Grayson felt no better about his mission when his feet hit the ground in Brazil. His men loaded the gear into the llamas, and they all mounted up and moved to the airstrip, heading up the road toward the base. The base was an initial investigation point, and it was as the team had left it. The bodies had all been burned, and the base had been stripped of anything that could be useful, 
but there was still blood staining the walls here and there, and there was spent brass surrounding the entrance in a semicircle. Grayson drove up to the entrance and paused, taking in the scene. Damn, Beckett called from the passenger seat of Grayson's llama. Must have been a hell of an assault. Look at all the brass. Grayson didn't reply. He just scanned left and right, trying to roughly estimate the number of rounds that had been fired. A lot was the conclusion that he came to. Do we need to sweep the area, sir? Smith was driving the second llama. Make sure the other guys didn't miss anything? Yep, Grayson replied informally. He'd been stripped of his rank as well as the men, and there was no reason to stand on ceremony anymore, as long as they knew he was in charge. We can't track them in the dark anyway. We'll check out the compound and we'll camp here for the night. Grayson swung his rifle to his side and he hopped out of the ATV. Smith, your team will check the perimeter. Beckett, you're with me. We'll sweep the compound. We'll rendezvous back here afterward. Smith nodded and took five men with him, while the other four stayed with Grayson and Beckett. The interior of the base seemed mostly untouched by the battle, though there was some spent brass and there was a grenade blast in the first hallway. Most of the dying had taken place outside, it seemed. They swept the main hallway, the barracks, and the mess hall, and the officers' quarters, and they came up with nothing. Luckily, the kitchen still had some provisions, and the barracks still had mattresses on the racks. At least they would get a hot meal and a warm place to sleep. Once Smith's team had returned to the compound, they all met in the mess hall, and Grayson gave an informational brief on the mission. Uh, here's what we know about them, Grayson began. They took a lot of arms and ammunition from the armory, but only three of the llamas. While the base had seven total, they destroyed the ones they left behind. Unless some of them are on foot, we can assume their numbers are between ten and sixteen. Sixteen men took this whole base? Smith cut in with a raised eyebrow. That's probably all that were left after the firefight. Beckett reasoned. They probably removed their dead after the fight. That's why we didn't find any bodies. It's possible, another man, Harris, spoke up from behind Smith, that they have more, and they're just using the llamas to move gear. They might still be in the area. Uh, if so, they probably would have attacked the investigation team, Beckett replied, craning his neck backwards to address Harris. Maybe. Eh, probably, Harris relented. We take nothing for granted. Grayson held up his hand. We'll post a four-person guard all night. And it's likely they've fled the area. Although still very sour about his mission as a whole, Grayson was happy to see that his men were thinking and they had their heads in the game. If they've left the area, they probably think they're off and away. They won't be expecting us to chase them down after this much time has passed. Grayson folded his arms. So, get some sleep tonight and load up on food. When we leave in the morning, we'll be traveling fast and hard. The men all shook their heads in agreement, and the briefing was over. Grayson grabbed a plate for himself and went to eating it. He paid little attention to the taste. He just wanted the energy. The watch was posted, and soon after the briefing, the rest of the troops filed on to bed. The following morning, Grayson climbed into the driver's seat of the llama, and he took a last glance at the front of the base. The morning light glinted here and there off of the shiny brass that littered the ground. There had been nearly fifty troops stationed here, and Ellison had sent twelve to pursue the insurgents. They may be almost on a level in number to the insurgents, but these guys that they were chasing were certainly dangerous. Grayson knew Ellison wanted him to fail. She probably wanted him to die, truth be told. Probably had something to do with her cousin, his wife. Ellison probably did not think he was good enough for her. Perhaps, though, it wasn't that simple. Ellison had always been protective of his wife, even to the point of begging her not to marry him. Grayson put that thought out of his mind, and gritting his teeth, he pressed on the accelerator. He could do plenty of damage with twelve men, and the insurgents would not know he was coming. There was only one road that led away from the compound, and it was the one he took. It went on by itself for miles and miles inland, and he guessed this was the way they would have been forced to travel. 
The road was well-traveled up until recently, and it was impossible to tell if anyone had driven on it in the past. But when Grayson and his men came to the end of the long entrance road to the base, the road forked north and south. The road it turned onto was not nearly as well-traveled and was partially covered with grass and mud. Grayson grinned when he saw the unmistakable trail of tire tracks through the mud that led away to the north. Perhaps he would be able to go back home after all. For the first time since the mission started, he smiled, and he looked over to Beckett, who was in the passenger seat. Rock and roll, Beckett said, smiling as well. Let's go hunting.